Good morning, afternoon, or night, ladies and gentlemen. Today on this edition of the Bull and Bears podcast, This McGillian Life, we are having a business and technology department takeover. And this week, we're going to be discussing taking a break. My name is Rohan Wachaldri. And I'm Yusuf Sanun. And we are live from the Bronson basement. Alright, so taking a break, especially we have reading week coming up, and of course a lot of midterms right. in between now and then and after that. Right. So right. taking a break is definitely a hot topic right now. Do you think a break culture exists at McGill? Honestly, Rohan, I really I'm really not sure, you know? I feel like we have a really inconsistent midterm schedule. Like I've already had two midterms, but the thing is after reading week the week actually we come back, I have another two midterms. So it's kinda hard for me to think about, you know, should I be even taking a break during reading week? Because, you know, I have two more exams, they're worth a lot. Uh, and so, you know, for me, I'm not really sure if the culture exists at McGill, just so, certainly based on the fact that, you know, students, even while they're, you know, during reading week, will have to be studying for their exams uh, on the un- upcoming weeks. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that that topic that you mentioned just now about, is it really a break during right. reading week? You got midterms and things on your mind. It kind of sucks. Yeah, I mean, what do you, like, what will you be doing during reading week? So this reading week, I'm going to try and learn how to ski. Okay. I'm going to spend a little time with family, but honestly... That doesn't leave me very much time to do the one thing that's on my mind during reading week, which is, of course, work. Right. Yeah. And, and it kind of sucks, right? Because like I know friends, for example, like I have a friend who is going to Cuba um, okay. out of nowhere, you know, because, yeah. you know, she's done. She doesn't have any midterms um, right. afterwards. She can actually, you know, take a break. Whereas me, I'm going to be staying in Montreal. I'm probably going to be studying for the midterm I have that Monday and, and another one that Friday. Uh, and, you know, it kind of sucks because it's I don't think McGill really tries to, you know, give us a real break. Yeah. It is unfortunate. It's like a check mark, right? Like they're checking off. We have a reading week, but yes, true. I hundred percent agree. But do you think that this is just a McGill thing, or is this happening elsewhere? Yeah. So the crazy part is, you know, um, other universities also have a have a spring reading week. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, if they're having the same issues. But even if they are, I feel like that's remedied by the fact that you know, in the fall, they also have a reading week. Thing. Right. So okay. So to my understanding, right, we we obviously have this reading week coming up. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's going to be March. Sure. But why is there no fall reading week? Yeah, you know, it's crazy, right? You'd think that in, in the midst of when winter's starting and when the sky's turning gray and, you know, you have midterms, exams, midterms, finals, um, group projects, everything that McGill might implement a fall reading week. But it's it's actually interesting to see why. Uh, there was actually a report from about three years ago when, when SMU was, like, seriously considering this. You know, they probably consider it every year. Yeah. Um, like, a million referendums uh, where they talked about the reasons why um, a fall reading week wouldn't work. One of the reasons was um, starting before Labor Day, which is something that they thought students wouldn't want to do. Okay. Another reason is, you know, considering Christmas, um, Christmas break, they didn't want to encroach on anyone's, you know, holiday celebrations, as well as um, they were also worried, you know, about the fact that if they were to implement a fall reading week, the final exam period might be more intensive. Okay. Um, which is an interesting consideration. But, you know, there are a few people that believe that there are more ulterior motives behind these. Yeah. Um, for example, uh, it came out that if we were to, you know, implement a fall reading week, McGill would have to pay an extra month of rent either in August or in May okay. uh, for the residential areas where, you know, we have 50% of the students uh, that come to McGill live in res. Right. So it's it's a huge cost for McGill already, um, which would go up, you know, if they had to pay an extra month. Yeah. Some people think that's a reason why. An- another, like, theory that we sort of read about was that, you know, they're just the slow grinding wheels of McGill bureaucracy. It takes probably like a decade or 20 years for something like this to happen. But. 100%. 100%. Um, I mean, do you, I think those are valid reasons. It seems like they are. Right. I mean, maybe from a monetary standpoint, but I think, you know, when you look at, for example, the student wellness hub that has like a one star rating on Google yeah, or, you know, like you're, you're walking through, through the ghetto, uh, in the middle of October, November, and you just see people crying, right? Like, 
I feel wow. like it takes. Have you, have I've seen it. I've seen it multiple kidding. times. Wow. I've seen people walking home. And just That's got tears incredible. In their eyes. That definitely speaks to the work culture of McGill. Yeah, it's, it's a grind culture. It's crazy. Huh? Yeah, absolutely. I, I didn't expect it coming in, but here we are now, right? right. And so I gotta ask, Rowan. I, I know McGill doesn't really give us a, a big chance to have a break, but you know, what's your break policy? Do you have a personal break policy? You know, in terms of break policy, it's something that we should all have set, right? right? Set in stone almost Absolutely. because that would make us well, work more efficiently like machines or robots. But it's something I don't have and I've never had. Like it's, it's something when I'm in the mood and I want to take a break or I'm feeling lazy, that's when I'll go do it. Whether it's like a song mm-hmm. or a three-hour session <laughs> of Netflix, whatever it is, that's, that's my break policy. But we can't ever be one of those people who just work for hours and hours, right? right? Yeah, I think those people are crazy, man. Like, you see them in Red Pot all the time. I know. Or in McLennan. Well, how do you do it? I mean, for me personally, I don't think I really have, like, a formal break policy, which is probably one of my faults. Okay. Um, it's just sort of work until I get tired or, or work until I hate what I see on the page. Right. Um, or, you know, some people could, yeah, and, and everyone agrees with this, even our audio producers, you know, smiling and nodding along, because it's just the way it goes, right? I mean, no, that's the culture well, we have. Yeah, well, that sucks, because sometimes you look at things, and you're just so bored of starting the same thing. Absolutely. You have no choice but to take perpetual, inefficient breaks. <laughs> yeah. It's unfortunate. Yeah. If you had a 25th hour in the day, let me ask you, what would you do with it? I think I would, I don't know if I would sleep. Yeah. Or do something that I think would like develop myself, but not in like a one of those corny oh I want to develop myself right. ways, but in like a something that I enjoy d- mm-hmm. doing. Right? What about you? What would you do with the twenty fifth hour? I'd probably sleep. Yeah, yeah, sleep. Do you think the presence of this reading week break makes the winter semester more or less packed? What's your opinion on that? I think it, it, I think it's different. It, it's inconsistent for some people, right? Um, okay. Like some people will have no midterms and will have the best time of their life in this week, right? And other people will, you know, feel more stressed out about the fact that they should be taking a break, but they can't. Yeah. Right. And so I honestly think it depends. Okay. Okay. Fair. Well, it's been a good discussion so right. far about the taking a break, but we're not done yet. We're going to talk about our first writer piece today. And this one is from Wendy Dow. And it's super interesting, right? It's about dungeons, dragons, and doses of reality. Yeah, let's kick it off. Let's kick it off. To play Dungeons and Dragons, you do not need much. A few pencils, an odd looking set of dice, a group of friends, and most importantly, an unbounded imagination. At its most complex, it is a game of strategy and chance, operating by an elaborate set of rules and characters. Distilled to its simplest form, it is a group of friends gathering to tell a story. Players take on characters with diverse traits ranging from elves and paladins to courageous knights and wizards, each complete with their own backstories and personalities. They are guided by the dungeon master, the person who crafts the adventure and lays out incentives or obstacles for players to overcome in pursuit of their mission. Hand-drawn maps guide their imagination and stacks of dice determine their fates. Its simplicity is its strength, a chance for anyone to exchange their mundane life for one of adventure and high stakes, to be on a quest to defeat a rising cult, or perhaps an orc that has rampaged the city, all in the unseemly space of one's own living room. When first introduced in the 1980s, an age where video game graphics were dominated by two-dimensional pixelated images and dark arcades, D&D rose in popularity by widening the scope of adventure. Instead of climbing a rung of finite levels, the game of D&D offered a spiraling mission, attached always with the allure of uncertainty and a world that felt more real. Wizards of the Coast, the creators of the game, share that 2018 was the fifth consecutive year of D&D's double-digit growth. In our age of advanced technology, however, why has D&D risen again in popularity? Critical role, the online series where voiceover actors broadcast their campaigns boasts millions of views on each episode, and the game's manual books are continuously topping bestseller lists. Why has D&D once again captured our attention? When games like Assassin's Creed Odyssey offer an almost perfect simulation of the ancient Greek landscape, an elite dangerous lets players explore a one-to-one skill representation of the Milky Way, why are people reaching towards an intangible adventure with no bells and whistles lived out exclusively in one's imagination? 
In the past few decades, virtual graphics have adopted the goal of perfection. Graphic designers wish to create graphics and simulations that are perfect to the extent of being inseparable from reality. Even with the present quality of our computer graphics, we can sit in front of a video, of a video game monitor and feel hours later as if we have undergone a tangible, real-life experience. Receiving shiny red alerts that spill onto our phone screens can feel as if we've engaged in true social interaction. Indeed, the more time we spend and accept the virtual world, the more and more it is becoming our reality. Is this kind of interaction, however, truly what we want? Do we like exploring virtual worlds that look exactly like our own? Do we want to live solely in a simulated reality? As luring as flawless graphics may be, there seems to be something tremendously boring about the virtual world. We are averse to perfection. We are being captivated by older technologies, editing grain into our Instagram photos, and rediscovering cassette tapes. There's something pleasant about hearing the crackling, distorted sounds of vinyl, or seeing an intimate moment captured in an unpolished, blurry photograph. As Brian Eno writes in A Year with Soul and Appendices, the booth singer with the cracked voice is the sound of an emotional cry too powerful for the throat that releases it. The excitement of grainy film or a bleached out black and white is the excitement of witnessing events too momentous for the medium assigned to it. Flaws remind us of our own wonderful existences. We aren't letting ourselves fade into, into technology and the reason for these shifts is not just nostalgia. As infinite as the virtual world may seem, it is also inescapably finite. When a video game presents you with something on par with reality, our own imaginations are stifled. When there's a set of predetermined outcomes, other imagined possibilities cannot endure. We forget, however, that despite how alluring virtual graphics may be, ideas fermented and grown by our own imaginations have the potential to be even more inventive than what video game designers can conjure. This may be why, when we fall in love with a story on paper, its filmic adaptation always seems to fall short of our expectations. In a 2006 interview, Gary Gygax, the co-creator of D&D, said, It reminds me of one time I asked one little boy why he preferred radio over television, and he said because the pictures are so much better. Thus, while technology present, presents us with an impressive image, D&D gives us our own agency. With nothing but description dictating the adventures, players must create their own vibrant imagery. They are free to shape the campaign with their spiraling imaginations, each idea sparking another. Just as in real life, anything could happen. Each time, players have the chance to return to a new game, something which video games and their algorithms can't offer. There is intimacy and a profound sense of discovery. The story is crafted in live time, and the only way to determine the ending is to keep playing. D&D is a chance to escape the restricting nature of technology, and it also offers a rare sense of stability in a politically turbulent time. With changing climate, tensions between countries, and eroding faith in our world leaders, it seems that our world faces a never-ending stream of challenges. In times like these, weekly meetings with a group of friends can be precious. The game has entered the realm of church ministries, schools, and even corporate work environments. Daniel London, a professional dungeon master, said, I have lawyers, doctors, mechanics, janitors, the whole spectrum comes into play game. In a New York Times article describing the game's meteoric, me, meteoric growth, the public expresses their teeming adoration, calling D&D a small taste of freedom and soothing. One comments, it feels good to have unity in the divided times we're living in. When the evil and prejudices of the world, real world are difficult to defeat, conquering trolls and mind flares can instill a shared sense of hope, a sense that our own world will be okay too. In many ways, D&D is more than just a game. It is a source of social connection and reassurance in a chaotic world. In a digital landscape that does not cease to grow, it satisfies what we've, what we've been craving. Individuality, intimacy, and a small yet reassuring dose of stability. What do you think of that, man? I mean, I thought that was super interesting. How about you? I thought it was really cool. Why? I mean, for me, like, you know, the ability to connect with friends and, and play games is really fun. But I find myself doing that most of the time on the internet these days, you know, okay. playing games and, you know, talking on Discord. So you never played Dungeons & Dragons? I've never played it once. Okay, well, no, no, me neither. No. I mean, board games are an interesting thing, but I've, yeah. 
I played them a lot when I was younger, but not really no, now. Not so I think it's really cool, right? Uh, the fact that you know they can play Dungeons and Dragons and you know have a have a personal interpersonal connection with someone and you know just like learn about them and play this game with them. Yeah, I think yeah, no, for sure it's fascinating, and I think it's something that maybe we'll try. Yeah, maybe someday. we should try for sure. Yeah. Um, fantastic piece from Wendy. Now we're gonna move on to our next piece, and this piece is from Zombie. What's it about? Uh, so we got we're talking about Super Bowl ads in Canada and how it's just not the same in the United States compared to the United States. All right, let's hear it from Zombie. Super Bowl ads in Canada. It's just not the same. Some people watch for the game, others for the halftime show, and others just for the advertisements. Every year, the Super Bowl brings entertaining content to all types of audiences. In the United States, the Super Bowl is consistently the most watched TV event of the year. Therefore, large companies shell out millions to buy commercial slots for creative and intriguing advertisements to capture the interest of American viewers. Unfortunately, for Canadian viewers, these sometimes iconic American advertisements are no longer shown on Canadian networks and have been replaced by local and national Canadian commercials. In years past, Canadian viewers had the option to watch the Super Bowl on American-based networks, which included the American commercials, or watching the Canadian broadcast providers. A Supreme Court decision made in December has finally forced Canadian viewers to watch Canadian network commercials. The Canadian Radio, Television and Telecommunications Commission CRTC, had previously allowed for simultaneous substitution in Super Bowl and other television feeds. Essentially, this allowed the Canadian broadcasting networks to substitute their Super Bowl stream with that from the American network, which was an identical program playing at the same time. The implications of simultaneous substitution for the Super Bowl in Canada were that the American advertisements would also be shown to Canadian consumers. In 2016, the CRTC ruled that this practice was against the public interest when it came to U.S. Super Bowl commercials as it took away from Canadian business advertising opportunities. Viewers were outraged that they could not view the commercials in the following years, so much so that the CRTC ended up changing its ruling. Yet Bell Media, which had acquired the license from the NFL in 2013 to broadcast the Super Bowl, claimed that the decision to reverse the original ruling cost them millions of dollars in lost marketing revenue. They challenged the decision and launched a court battle. The Canadian Supreme Court ruled in favor of Bell Media, reversing the CRTC rule change in December 2019 and once again forcing Canadian advertisements to be shown during the Super Bowl. This decision opens the door for a Canadian market that is highly engaged with the Super Bowl. Even as the most viewed TV event in the United States, only 51% of Americans watch it, compared to 55% of Canadians. In addition, commercials in the United States cost upwards of $5 million for a $30 slot, whereas they cost approximately $200,000 for an identical commercial slot in Canada. Combining higher viewer share with the significantly lower advertising costs in Canada, it was calculated that for every dollar spent, there are 2.4 more Canadian viewers than American ones. Canadian firms are therefore optimistic to capitalize on this opportunity to effectively reach a large audience. The Super Bowl is consistently one of the top live TV moments for Canadian audiences, so we're excited about the ability to share a Canadian story with millions of Canadians. We don't think that there's any reason that Canadian Super Bowl ads can't be on the same level of craft and entertainment as the mega-budget ads aired in the U.S. feed, said a Canadian executive. Canadian companies are increasingly taking advantage of this unique marketing opportunity, yet American companies still have the right to purchase these commercial slots on the Canadian network, which is why some American ads still get played on the Canadian stream. While Canadian viewers may be upset that they do not get all unique commercials from American advertisers in real time during the Super Bowl, almost all are normally posted on YouTube and other internet sources so that they can catch up. Furthermore, as many of these advertisements typically relate to American consumers and their ideals, the ability of Canadian businesses to publish creative commercials that will capture the interest of and relate to their Canadian consumers should be appreciated as a way to make the Super Bowl watching experience feel more intrinsically Canadian. Okay, this one was really interesting because, of course, we just had the Super Bowl on February the 2nd. Right. What did you think of it? 
I mean, the Super Bowl itself was was a great game. Yeah. Um, but honestly, I feel that a lot of people just watch it for the ads, right? Like exactly. a lot of people are there, you know, to share that that cultural experience with their family and their friends, uh, and laugh at the ads and have a good time. So I think it really sucks, you know, for Canadian viewers, um, to you know not be able to see the the level of you know high priced and like high investment ads that are, that happen in the United States. So fantastic piece from Zavi, but now we're gonna move on to the next one. Right. So this piece comes from Tori Fortunato in Arts and Culture, talking about you know Haley Williams. Uh, the lead singer of Paramore, the former lead singer, and her current solo project called Petals for Armor. Petals for Armor, the importance of letting Haley Williams go solo. Paramore fans have anxiously awaited the release of lead vocalist Haley Williams' solo album, Petals for Armor, since she announced it in December 2019. Last month, Williams released the song Simmer and its music video as the first installment of the project. A second song entitled Leave It Alone was released last week. Before anyone asks, no. This project does not have the same sound as the punk rock Paramore most fans fell in love with back when we were all desperately trying to go to Van's Warp Tour. This project isn't even remotely similar to their most recent album, After Laughter, and it shouldn't be. Pedals for Armor is an outlet for Williams to express her deeply personal emotions, and regardless of any review, Paramore fans need to recognize the importance of her solo project. A solo project by Williams isn't a new idea. Her career would have started as a solo venture if Atlantic Records had their way. Williams instead pushed to be the frontrunner of a punk rock band, and thus Paramore was born. Fast forward about 15 years, and Williams' solo career finally begins with Pedals for Armor. While the talented singer has been a featured artist on numerous songs throughout her career, most notably Airplanes by B.O.B. and State of Night by Zed, this is the first time she has full creative control. To be honest, there hasn't been a better time for Williams to take this next step in her career. While there was a possibility that Williams might go solo after the Pharaoh Brothers left Paramore in December 2010, her solo career would have been overshadowed by a band breakup. More than that, Williams still had plans for Paramore, and she wanted to prove the band could survive even after two of its founding members left. Paramore needed to stay alive because it gave Williams credibility to voice her frustrations with members leaving the band. If such songs like Future or Tell Me How came from Williams as a solo artist and not as Paramore, they would have been regarded not only as bitter, but hypocritical as well. Now, after the zigzags of After Laughter and the start of a new decade, Williams has the perfect opportunity to debut her first solo album. The project will be intense. In the last few years, Williams has experienced a divorce, a depression diagnosis, and grief from her grandmother's recent fall down a set of stairs. As we can already hear with Simmer and Leave It Alone, Williams is channeling all of those emotions into Pedals for Armor. Simmer allows Williams to channel her rage through an intense musical number and video, where she runs in a forest until catching up to a former version of herself in an abandoned house. While Haley has yet to comment on the inspiration for the songs, fans can't help but speculate her rage comes from divorcing her ex-husband, Chad Gilbert, who she began dating when she was 17. Leave It Alone explores Williams' grief and fear of losing loved ones. She questions the validity of loving people, as it only contributes to the grief she'll feel once someone is gone. In an interview with Beats 1 Zane Lowe, Williams remarks, The more you love, the more you lose. Williams has never been this personal before, and that's because she wasn't ready to be. Processing trauma, abuse, and grief takes an immeasurable amount of time, and the fact that Williams is so open about her experiences now reveals how far she has come in accepting her mental health. This is all the more reason to support this project. I know there are many disappointed Paramore fans, bitter that the band's punk rock sound has been dead since Brand New Eyes, but it's time that fans stop pinning their desires onto artists who have clearly moved on. We can't keep tying Williams to misery business when she has stated numerous times that she is not the same person she was when she wrote it. Pedals for Armor isn't a project by the lead singer of Paramore. It is a solo debut of Haley Williams, and I cannot wait to hear it in full. Were you a fan of Paramore? So I actually was uh, back in the day, though. Yeah. I, for me, it was around seventh or eighth grade. I must have been thirteen years right. old when I like really. Those were the days. Those were the days, man. Uh, taking a break was a different time, man. <laughs> and I liked Paramore. I liked. They had a couple of songs. Like "Ain't It Fun" was a good one. Banger. Um, and unfortunately, I, I really can't think of any other ones. <laughs> I think that was the the headliner. But yeah, 
it's interesting to see how stylistically she's changed. Right. So that was a fantastic piece from Tori. Thank you so much. So thanks everyone for listening. Um, this is episode three of This Megillion Life. We'd like to thank our fantastic audio producer, Cindy Shi, as well as our three writers who put out amazing pieces. We're so lucky to have the talent that the Bull and Bear has. From me, Yusuf Sanu, and me, Rohan Chavi, we'd like to thank you for listening. We'd like to see you guys next week.